0: This morning, I'm going to look at another section. I told those last week that I'm going to look at some events or some teachings in the last week of Jesus' life. And I would encourage you to be, uh, if you want to do something devotionally different, just go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read all of the different perspectives that these four different writers can give us of that last week. It's amazing what Jesus did in the last week. And it's even more amazing in my mind when I stop and think that he knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. He knew the agony he was going to be enduring. He knew what they were going to do to him. And yet he spends all this time not only ministering to his disciples and teaching them, which he did, but also it was like giving those Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to accept the truth. And that even excites me because, boy, did he give opportunity after opportunity for opportunity for me to accept the truth, and probably a whole lot of us here. He's patient. This morning, we're going to look at a scripture that's probably pretty familiar. It's going to be from Luke chapter 22. And the title of my message this morning is The New Covenant. The New Covenant. And I think it's something that almost gets glossed by in the scripture that I'm going to be reading. Uh, we, we say the words, we know it's there, I think, but I think we miss just how significant those few words are in ch- verse 20 of chapter 22. So I'm going to start reading it at, at verse 7 through verse 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was, had to be sancti- sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, and make your preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And Jesus, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, you will not, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we look into this section of Scripture, Father, that you speak to each one of our hearts. Give us a greater and greater and greater revelation of what Christ did for us, what he's telling his disciples about as he talks about a new covenant in his blood. Father, I pray you would give us revelation that would change our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So here Luke is giving us uh, a narrating a very, very important event in the life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus says, I have been eagerly waiting for this. Which in a sense just boggles my mind because he knows within just a couple, three days he's going to be in agony. He knows that very night he's going to be arrested. And he says, I've been eagerly looking forward to this. So it's an important event in the life of Jesus, but it's also an important event, event in the history of all humankind. I'm not talking just about the Last Supper. We call it the Last Supper. This section of Scripture is talking about what we call the Last Supper. I'm not even talking about him instituting the, this remembrance aspect. Remember me. When you eat of the, the bread and you drink of the cup, remember me. And as we pray each time we do receive communion, We ask the blessing on the the bread that just symbolizes his body and all that he endured in his body. And we pray over the blood, the cup, recognizing all that's in the blood. And, boy, that's a big deal. But we kind of almost gloss past this little phrase in the end of verse 20 where it says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What is the new covenant? What was the old covenant? You know, the new covenant, if we properly understand it, it opens the door for us to have a personal and powerful spiritual life. If we don't understand it, if we misunderstand it, if we're not familiar with it, you know what happens? People continue to live as if we're under the old covenant. We continue to try to earn our salvation. We continue to try to impress God. We don't think of it as keeping the law, but really that's what so many people do. And when we do that, it becomes this legalistic, impersonal, religious thing. And that is not the new covenant. That is the old covenant. So what is a covenant? You know, we don't hear too much about covenants in rural Minnesota, but if you lived in a city in a housing development or something, you might be f- familiar with the term, there's a covenant. And that covenant is agreement between the community of what colors you can and can't paint your house. Maybe what kind of shingles you need, what color the shingles need to be. Maybe whether or not you can park a car on the street or not. All of these things can be part of a covenant. We sometimes use the word contract to mean, is the meaning of a covenant. In many, many respects, it is a little bit like a contract. But there's something significantly different between a covenant and a contract. Just think of it in terms of even marriage, a wedding. The man and the woman, the bride and the groom, they stand up here and they make a covenant before God and before all of us that are observing and watching. They are entering into a voluntary agreement of a personal relationship. You can have lots of contracts where there's not a personal relationship. You know what? You go borrow some money from the bank to buy a car. You have a contract. Your personal relationship isn't involved with that. But in a covenant, it's always a personal relationship. And in the Bible, we see basically two types of covenants. We see a covenant or an agreement between what we might call equals. That would be like if any two of us we voluntarily decided to enter into a covenant of a relationship, a covenantal relationship of some sort. Two people equals. The other type of covenant you see in the scriptures is more one between like a king and maybe a lesser king or a king and his people. So there's not an equality there. One gets to dictate, dictate the terms a lot more than the other. But those, those are the two basic types of covenants. And people and theologians disagree and argue about how many different covenants you can find throughout the Old Testament. I'm not so much concerned about that today, how many we think there are. Some start all the way in Eden with Adam, and they come all the way on up to this new covenant. But the point is, this covenant and agreement, and with God, it's always that second type of covenant in the Bible. God demonstrates his sovereignty and his kingship, and he dictates the terms of the covenant to his people. And his people's response is to live in obedience and serve the Lord. And we saw over and over and over in the Old Testament how that didn't work so good. God never broke it. It was always the people who broke the covenant. So we're going to look first at the Old Covenant just a little bit because I think it's, It's so important that we understand the difference between the old and the new. Because as believers, whether you get it or understand it all or not, it makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. And most of us come out of a natural mindset or a religious mindset that if it hasn't totally ignored the New Covenant, it's certainly become corrupted in the way it's been taught to us, the way we understand it. All these works, cleaning up your act, all those things are attached to it. You know, it's not a license to go out and do whatever you want, but it certainly isn't legalistic. So we're going to look at the Old Covenant first. The Old Covenant actually got its start, the one I'm going to refer to, with Abraham. God called Abraham, and he made a covenant with Abraham. God basically said to Abraham, you know what? I want you to leave your family, leave everything you've got here, and I want you to go somewhere. And in this covenant, for his obedience, he promised him basically three things. Go, and I will give you land, and I will give you people. You're going to have offspring. You're going to have so many offspring. It's going to be mind-boggling, and we're going to give you blessings. And as you look in uh, Genesis chapter 12, you'll see those first three, four verses kind of lay that out, and then the rest of the chapter kind of expounds on it. But that's really what he said. You know what? I'm calling you, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. If you follow my instructions, if you obey my commands, and you go where I lead you to go, I am going to bless you with land, people, and blessings. Blessings will abound. Even all the people will bless you. That was the covenant. Then as we go on through the Old Testament, we see different things being added to the covenants. You know, through the life of Moses, we get the law, we get the, the Ten Commandments through David, through the prophets. We think, see things added to the covenant. And when I say the law, it goes beyond the Ten Commandments. It goes to all these other laws and regulations that were given. And then we see it also part of the, part of the covenant was the, the tabernacle and the temple and all of the temple worship all of the the sacred days, and all of the slaughter of animals. All of that is part of this Old Covenant that had to be followed. Basically, when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant covers it. Some very important aspects of the Old Covenant. I'm going to give you just four. And they're important because when you get what I'm going to share with you about the New Covenant, the contrast is striking, and we're under the New Covenant. First aspect of it I want to mention, it was all focused on conformity to the law. It was all about what you had to do to conform to the law. You had to remember the Sabbath. You had to remember every uh, religious holiday. You had to remember all of the things you couldn't do, the things you couldn't touch, the things you couldn't eat, the things you could eat. You had to remember it all. You had to remember all of the sacrifices. Everything had to be done perfectly. So it was all about conforming to the law, conformity. The second aspect is, and and if you're familiar with even the Easter story, you would kind of see a great picture of this in the temple, but God is basically separate from humankind. When we look at the old covenant and the temple, remember the temple. Remember, we've talked about this in recent months. There were basically—well, there were there were twelve tribes. They were a tribe for each one of the twelve sons of Jacob. So we mm-hmm. have the—we have the twelve tribes. Only one of those twelve tribes could be the priests. So you had one-twelfth of the people could be priests. And numerically, it wasn't one-twelfth, but one-twelfth of the tribes. And of all those priests in that tri- the tribe of Levi, only ones that could enter the temple area were the ones that were actually on duty at that given time. In other words, the different, tri- the different priests from all over the land would take turns serving in the temple. So you, one family or one tribe, only when they were on duty, and then there was only one priest who could actually go into the holy place, which would mean he actually got to go in and go as far as the altar of incense. And he did that every day. But he still is separated from the presence of God by that veil that's covered or blocks them from going into the Holy of Holies. And only one person, one day a year, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. And he better do it exactly right, or he'll die. So God was basically separated from his people under this old covenant. One person, once a year, could enter into the Holy of Holies. Third aspect of it is the blood of animals is used as a picture to show us the cost of forgiveness. And I say forgiveness... And really, I'm not even using it the way we understand forgiveness in the New Testament. You know, they had the Day of Atonement. Atonement also just simply has the meaning of covering over. So the blood of all those animals that were shed was giving us a picture of the cost for sins to be forgiven. You know, we see in the New Testament where it tells us that we're all sinners and all fall short of the glory of God. And that the penalty or wages of our sin is death. Blood had to be shed. And as we look at Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So all those animals that were being slaughtered, all the religious ceremony that was taking place, all the sprinkling of blood, all the burning of incense, did not truly forgive sin. It just covered it up and the people then would leave and sin again. That part's similar, that we would also sin again. But the differences in the New Covenant, the Old Covenant, are stark. In Hebrews 10.4, it says it very, very clearly. For it is not possible for the blood of goats or bulls to take away sin. So under the Old Covenant, it was just a covering. It's like... God's wrath is present. As long as you do all the things right, all the ceremonies right, you shed all the blood, when I look at all the sin, it's covered by the blood of the animal. It's not gone. It's not removed. The power is not broken, but it's covered. And they had to do this day after day, year after year, for hundreds and hundreds of years under the old covenant. And the fourth thing I want to mention, the fourth aspect of the Old Covenant, salvation was dependent upon obedience to the law, which was impossible, which was God's point. No one could keep the law, it was impossible. You had to go through all that stuff year after year after year after year. And it didn't matter because you'd still sin. You know, there was no security under the old law, under the covenant. I mean, I could go and do everything right. I could bring my animal. I could hand it over to the priest. I could do all the right singing. I could say all the right words. I could study. I could pray. I could beat my chest. I could do whatever I needed to do. And they could take my animal in and do everything right according to the law. And the power of sin in my life wasn't broken One iota. But my sin was covered. That's it. No security. And the problem with this is so many people, don't call it this necessarily, but so many people live like the old covenant is still in effect. So many of us here still live like the old covenant is still in effect. We shouldn't. We talk about it a lot. Pastor Bob talks about it all the time. Because it's so important that we understand the difference. We aren't going to earn standing before God. It's impossible. But people believe it. You know, we believe that God's real, but they believe that he's a distant God. He's a God that's kind of unapproachable, and he's either uninvolved in my life or he's controlling everything anyway. You know, I've shared this, this testimony so many times so the long-term members can ignore this, but I saw such a great example When I was in Russia, and I think, I'm not sure if Paul was with on this one or not, but we were in Russia, and we were showing the Jesus film in the city of Radushni. They'd never seen it before. This was back in the early 90s, when people didn't even know the name of Jesus. They didn't know who it was. They didn't have Bibles. And we showed the video, and there was a babushka, a grandma there, and I went up to her. And I said, after the movie, I said, do you know about God? Yep, I know about God. I said, tell me about the God you know. And these were her words. It's like God's out there somewhere sitting on his throne with his back to me. And every now and then, he'll look back. And if I'm doing the right things, he lets me walk closer. If I'm doing the wrong things, he punishes me. And this is the mindset of still so many people today that somehow or other, to draw near to God, we've got to live this way no matter what. We've got to follow the rules, follow the laws. And if we don't, oh, my goodness. Now, the Scripture's clear. In obedience, there's blessing. and disobedience, brings cursing. But that's not what it's talking about, him beating us with a stick or casting us aside and saying, you're a loser, I don't want you near me anymore. It's not like that at all. Listen to some data. This is done by LifeWay Research. I've got a lot of it, and it's numbers, so I'll maybe just hit a few highlights. But LifeWay Research asked just a random group of Americans this question. Do you believe you're a sinner, or do you not believe you're a sinner? And when they asked a random group of Americans, 67% or two-thirds said, yes, I am a sinner. Then they followed up and gave them a choice of how to deal with or how is sin supposed to be dealt with in their life. They gave them three simple choices. First choice, A, was I depend on Jesus Christ to overcome sin. The second choice was I work on becoming less of a sinner. And the third choice is I'm fine with being a sinner. In asking all the Americans that acknowledged that they were sinners, 28% of them said... I rely on Jesus Christ. 34% said I work harder at not being a sinner. 5%, they didn't care. When they asked Christians, people who proclaim to be Christians, 37% said they rely on Jesus Christ to deal with sin. 37, just over one out of three. 38% said they work harder. 3% didn't care. When they asked Americans who proclaimed that they were evangelical Christians, how many of you in here are an evangelical Christian? Okay, everybody raise your hand. If you're a Christian, you better be an evangelical one. Here's how they define evangelical. The Bible is the highest authority for everything I believe. Two, evangelism and leading people to Christ is an important part of our faith. Three, Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can remove the penalty of sin. And four, only those who believe in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive the gift of eternal life. That's what an evangelical is. We are an evangelical, charismatic, non-denominational, independent church. Take your pick. But we are evangelical. When they asked the evangelicals, 72% said they rely on Jesus Christ. And before we celebrate, wow, it's a big number, that means 28% of evangelicals don't rely on Christ for dealing with sin in their life. When they asked Protestants as a whole, which would include evangelicals, 49% said they have relied on Christ, 31% try harder. When they asked Catholics, 19% said they rely on Christ. 48% work harder. Religions of works. And when you think about this, how many people, even in evangelical circles, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches, there's still only 72% that say, yeah, I trust in Jesus to deal with my sins. It's no wonder we struggle with so much guilt, so much shame, so much condemnation. One out of four of us don't believe that Jesus dealt with our sin. We're somehow or other working in our own strength to to try to become better. But this was Old Covenant. We are no longer, thank goodness, under the Old Covenant. So what's the New Covenant? Actually, the first mention of the New Covenant was way back in Jeremiah, about 600 years before Jesus even came on the scene. Jeremiah 31, if you're writing these down. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 But if you want to read what Jeremiah said, it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews quoted it and explained it in Hebrews chapter 8. And that's where I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 8. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. So 600 years before Christ, 600 years, the prophet Jeremiah writes these words. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In verse 12, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Well, from the time Jeremiah wrote that, it took 600 years. But that night when Jesus was sitting in the upper room with his disciples, eating that last Passover meal, knowing he was going to be arrested and crucified and take the wrath of God on our behalf, knowing all that, he's telling them the time is here. My blood, the new covenant in my blood, that's going to be shed for all people, for everyone. He promised this new covenant, putting the laws in our minds and in our hearts. They're not written on stone anymore. We carry them with us. The good news of the new covenant is, is so, one of the biggest things is I no longer have to improve myself. Now, before you get carried away with that one, we fail at it miserably. Under the new covenant, there's this dramatic change that takes place. The Holy Spirit, God, comes and lives in us. And the Holy Spirit will change us from the inside out. So many of us try to change on the outside, hoping it changes something on the inside. It doesn't work that way. We can change things on the outside, and it looks better to those around us, but it doesn't change you on the inside. If you do not accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and the Holy Ghost does not live in you, there will not be an internal change taking place. You can do all the good works outwardly. You can make all these nice changes in your behavior, and you are never going to be born again doing that. It won't happen. The pressure's been removed. The, The responsibility has been removed. Under the old covenant, it was all about what we need to do Under the new covenant, it's all about what Jesus already did. That's the big difference. He's done it all. And as believers, we need to embrace and begin to understand He's done it all. Doesn't mean we live any way we want because we won't want to. Because the Holy Spirit in us, the law is written in our hearts the law of love, the law of obedience, it's written in our hearts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's written on our hearts if we're Christians. And out of that comes the internal change that brings about the outward change. There's one little caveat. We need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We need to cooperate. We can resist it all we want. We can be born again. And believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He died for me. We can believe all that. But if we still live like we're under the law. We're saved but in bondage. That's not what Jesus died for. He said I will forgive mankind their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. Through the blood of Jesus. There's been a new agreement made between God and humankind. He still dictates the terms of the agreement. But. Now listen to this, we can't break the covenant. He made the covenant, he died, he sacrificed his blood, he did it all, and once we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can't break that covenant. He's done it all, it's not about what we do or what we've done. So what is the difference, or what are the benefits of the new covenant? I'm going to just give you four, and I hope in your mind you can contrast them with the four that I talked about in the old covenant. Number one, it means God will change us from within. What was it all about before? Conformity, conformity, conformity. Do the law, do the right thing, do this, do that, do the other thing. Now it's an internal change. Worked by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit. How many of us know it's the Holy Spirit that is transforming us into the likeness of Christ? It's not Mike in his flesh trying to become like Jesus. That would be a miserable failure, no matter what. But it's the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us on the inside. He writes the word on our heart. He's the one that puts it in our mind. He's always there. He's never leaving us, never forsaking us. He's always present. He's always trying to transform us into the image of Christ. He'll do the work inside. We just cooperate as he's changing. Just cooperate. Number two, it means I have full access to God's presence. Now and for eternity. Under the law, one tribe had to be on duty. Once a day, one guy got to go into the holy place, and once a year, into the holy of holies or the presence of God. In the new covenant, we have access to God 24-7-365. Not only do we have access, he wants us to come into his presence. He wants us to commune with him. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to spend time meditating on who he is. It's his desire. He's not separating us. In First Peter 2, verse 9, it says, You are a chosen people, and you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into this wonderful light. As I mentioned earlier, if you remember the Easter story, when Jesus is crucified on that cross, and when he says, It is finished, and he takes his last breath, and his heart stops beating, the earthquake and the temple veil, that barrier between mankind and God's presence in the Holy of Holies, that thick, heavy veil was ripped from top to bottom. Supernaturally, God opened up the way into his presence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And everyone is invited to come in, everyone. I'm going to read Hebrews 4:14 4, through 16. And I'm going to want you to really catch the last verse. It says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest, Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hone firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we have, and yet he never sinned. Let us then, this is the part, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Yes, with awe, yes, with wonder, yes, with, with a, a spirit of knowing who he is and who we are, but with confidence because we are his children invited into his presence. He offered up his son so that we could come into his presence. So he says, come to the throne of grace with confidence. And then it goes on and says, why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I, I know I've read that verse so many times, but that last part just grabbed a hold of me. How much and how many, how often and how many ways do you and I need mercy and grace in our times of trouble? Grace, the, the, a power to be an overcomer, grace. We need mercy. We need grace. We can goldly, boldly go before him because of what took place when the new covenant was opened to us. And he wants to. Think of this in terms of human, human families, parents and their children. We want them to come to us. We want to commune with them. We want intimate relationship with them. And we aren't even close to what God feels towards us. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Sins are forgiven. Never going to be used against us anymore. Under the new covenant that we can come directly to him and receive grace and mercy. The third difference, it means I have been liberated from the bondage of sin. Remember what it was in the old covenant? The blood of animals covered it up. We now have been set free of the power of sin and death. Old covenant covered it. Now it's been forgiven. It's gone. He doesn't recognize it anymore when he looks at you and me. He's not going to hold against us anymore when he looks at you and me. Never going to throw it back in our faces ever again. Not only is the sin gone, he has now given us the ability to not sin and I think we all know we will, and we do, but the Holy Spirit in us, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the resurrection power of God living in us that will has has broken the power of sin and the power of death. You know, oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone because of the new covenant. We have the ability to, to stop sinning now because of the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in us. Before you couldn't. They couldn't. They did not have the power to overcome sin. It was not present in the old covenant. Because he died for us, because he redeemed us, because he was a ransom for us, we have been set free from sin. Say that in your head. I've been set free from sin. I've been set free from sin. I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to sin, and I don't have to try so doggone hard not to sin. All I need to do is submit to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will begin to transform me. And that sin that was such an allure before, that sin that I just thought was so much fun that I had to have, couldn't live without, all of a sudden it loses its luster. I'm not even drawn to it anymore. Why? Because the power of sin has been broken. And as we, re, re, as we respond to the Holy Spirit, we're changed from the inside out. And the fourth one, and people argue about this too, or theologians discuss it. I'm sharing what I personally believe here, so you can do with it what you like. But I believe the New Covenant says and means I never have to worry or doubt my salvation once I have been truly saved by the blood of Christ. Under the old covenant, man, alive, we did all the work at the temple before I even got home. I blew it. I blew it. Whatever was covered, now I got new ones that aren't covered. I'm I'm always at risk. And there are so many Christians that still act and live that way. I was jokingly talking to someone this past week, so we talked about their salvation, and their answer was, oh, jeez, I got saved every summer at camp. I got saved at every altar call in church. I've been saved so many times, it's unbelievable. We get saved once. Once we're, once, once we're really and truly saved. We're saved. And I believe because of the new covenant, and I'm going to read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25, it says, Christ did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not even his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Our sins have been paid for once and for all. If you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, all your past sins are forgiven. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the sins you committed this morning are forgiven. And if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the sins you're going to commit tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day until you go home to be with the Lord are forgiven. They're forgiven. Jesus paid the price one time for all sins. One of the scriptures that I really like is found in 1 John chapter 5. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. What John is writing about there, he's just laying it out. Here's this Jesus guy. Here's what he did. It's amazing. Look at who he was, what he declared, what he did, what he taught. Look at all these things. And then when it says in verse 13 of chapter 5 of 1 John, I tell you all of these things in order that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. Are you saved? I hope so. Why do you only hope so? You either accepted Christ or you haven't, and he either did what he said he did or he hasn't. You need to know, and you can know. And John is writing, I tell you all these things so you can know. You don't have to worry. You don't have to, uh uh-oh, did I blow it last night? I still hope I'm saved this morning. It sounds silly to some of us, but it sounds real to others of us. If you were truly saved yesterday, you're still saved this morning, no matter what you did. It's been forgiven. The blood of Christ has washed it away. He's freed us from the slavery of sin and that kind of worry. Which brings me to the last point. How can I enter the new covenant? Hopefully, I'm talking to a whole bunch of people who're bored out of their minds because they know all this stuff. But just in case there's one of us that doesn't, how do you enter the new covenant? You know, think about that night in the scripture that I just read in Luke. You know, what was Jesus doing? He was having the Passover meal. Who was he having it with, and who was he talking to? He was talking to his disciples. To to be a part of the new covenant, to have the new covenant an active reality in your life. You need to become a disciple of Christ. What does that mean? You accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. And you know that the penalty for sin is death, and Jesus came and died as a sinless sacrifice for my sin. I thank him for doing that, that his blood washed away my sin, that I can stand before God holy and righteous because of what Jesus did. Not because of anything that's in me, but because of what he did. And because he did such an amazing thing out of his love for me, out of my love for him, I'm going to surrender my life to him and I'm going to live my life for his glory. You are a disciple. You have been born again. You are part of the new covenant. It's part of who you are now. When we exchange this, my control of my life for his life, the new covenant, God offers us these amazing things that I mentioned. The, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit lives in you to bring about the internal changes necessary to become more and more like Christ every day. It offers us free and total access to God every moment of every day. And we're free from the bondage of sin, the power of sin. We no longer have to sin. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And I believe it offers us the assurance of eternal salvation once we have truly accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So it's always the same question Have you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And if you haven't, it's such a simple thing to do, acknowledging who we all know we are as sinners knowing how we have sinned and will sin, and there's nothing we can do about it. We need to surrender our lives and accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. And he will bring about the changes in our life that we all want deep down. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you and praise you for a new covenant God, I am so thankful we do not have to live under the burden of that law, the guilt and the condemnation of that law. Father, that we no longer have to be prisoners of sin in our life, that you have provided a way through Jesus Christ, through his shed blood. You have provided a way and you have opened up this whole new covenant for each one of us where all the blessings that you promise in your word are ours, as your children, because of what you've done. Lord, I pray that you would set any of us free in here of guilt or shame or a religious spirit that says we've got to do better, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would rise up in each one of us and our whole mindset would change So I want to do this. I want to do that. Give each one of us, remove whatever barrier there is to receiving your love. Give each one of us a fresh taste, a fresh sense of how much you love us. Father, and I pray all these things that you would be glorified in each one of our lives, that we would bring you glory, that we would truly model and be ambassadors for Jesus, for the kingdom. Now, Lord, I also ask that you watch over us as we go our different directions, keep us safe on these roads. God, we pray that you would provide us opportunities to share the good news of the gospel, share the good news of the new covenant that's available to all, that we'd be part of your your army of believers advancing the kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.